This particular political convention ended June 16, 1858. The last main event was a speech given by a candidate who was running for the Senate. And I would venture to guess that many of you will recognize at least part of the speech that was given that night. Though his speech wasn't powerful enough to gain him a seat in the Senate, its message continued to gain steam, propelling this candidate to the national stage and winning the next presidential election. That speaker was Abraham Lincoln, and the speech was his house-divided speech. Here's a snippet of that speech. A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half-slave and half-free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall. But I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other. Lincoln knew that the conflict couldn't continue as it was. It had to be dealt with. And soon after Lincoln was inaugurated as the 16th president of the United States, the Civil War began. Lincoln's words were right. And after four years of bloodshed and destruction, followed then by reconstruction in many hard times, the house did not fall, but did in fact become all one thing. If you were to ask a random person on the street where this, quote, a house divided against itself cannot stand, where it originated, most likely people would say Abraham Lincoln. But hopefully you'd also get a number of responses of people saying, Jesus said that. Jesus gives a similar speech to the Pharisees of his day, some 1,800 years before Lincoln, in response to the absurd claim that these Pharisees made about Jesus. I invite you to open your Bibles again to Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 28, and see the claim that the Pharisees make about Jesus. See Jesus' response and Jesus' exhortation to the crowds that were gathered there that day and to us as well as we are gathered here this morning. Again, I'll invite you to stand out of respect for God's word if you are able to. Luke chapter 11, starting at verse 14. Again, reading in Jesus' name. And he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Others, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. But he knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and not finding any, it seeks, and not finding any, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. And then it goes and takes along seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first." 
While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Father God, these are your words. Your word is true. Jesus, we pray this morning that you would help us to hear your word and its truth and its purity. And Lord, that you would also help us to observe your word, to guard and to keep it here this morning. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus has just cast out a demon from a man that prevented this man from speaking. This man was mute and the demon was mute. The demon left and suddenly this man who can't speak starts speaking. And the crowds were amazed. Hearing someone speak words for the first time is always exciting. It's always amazing. You remember the amazement that you had the first time you heard the syllables mama or dada from your kid. Or the first time that you heard your grandkids call you Oma or Opa, Grammy, Grandpa, Mima or Grumpa, or some other precious obliteration of the word grandmother or grandfather. It's precious and it's amazing. This is your child or your grandchild. And if you're one that has emotions, then all of the feels start coming rushing in as you remember or you hear for the first time these words from their mouths. Now imagine the amazement you would have if those first words weren't just a babbling of syllables, but articulately enunciated words. If you were greeted with a complete sentence, if your child, your grandchild just said, Hello, mother, this is what I would like to have for supper today, that would be even more amazing. Maybe you'd even let them make supper. That's more like the amazement that this crowd shared. First, in the fact that this man who wasn't able to speak, speaks and speaks clearly. But as the reality of the situation begins to sink in, that this man had a demon and this demon left and now he's able to speak, but we just saw a demon flee. We just saw a demon be cast out of this man. And the amazement sinks in again. What just happened? In Matthew's record of the event, he shared the question that the crowds started asking. The crowd started asking each other, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? Now, they weren't asking if Jesus' last name was Davidson. The question that they were asking was, was whether or not this man, this Jesus, could possibly be the promised son of David, the Messiah who would come and rule in the way of King David, who would establish again the kingdom of Israel, only to a far greater existence than what it had been before. Was this the promised king? Was this the one who would make Israel great again? Could he be the one that we have all been waiting for? Though electricity wouldn't be invented for many years down the road, the excitement was electric. There were others in the crowd that day, that didn't share that same excitement, though. They had already determined in their minds that there is no way that this Jesus could be the Messiah. So even though all signs seemed to be pointing to the fact that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ, they simply refused to believe. In fact, their stubborn denial went so far as to make this claim, that he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. 
They say here that the only reason that Jesus is able to cast out demons is he's doing it by some kind of demonic forces, some kind of sorcery or witchcraft. Jesus is in league with the devil. This is the statement that the religious leaders are making. If you ever wanted to discredit a man in his ministry, simply slander him and say that he's in league with the devil and people will immediately suddenly be turned off or instantly skeptical of anything that he has to say. That's exactly what these Pharisees were doing here. It's an absurd claim, but the Pharisees were willing to do just about anything to keep people from following Jesus, but beyond that, to convince themselves that this Jesus is not the Christ. Jesus responded to them with the original house-divided speech, a short and sweet speech to the point. Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan is also as divided against himself, then how will this kingdom stand? Jesus points out the foolishness of such an argument. The strategy to divide and conquer isn't to divide the offense and split up to defeat the enemy. But the strategy behind that is to divide the enemy, to weaken the enemy so you can more easily overcome them. Whether that's trying to figure out your taxes and dividing and conquering it, taking it piece by piece, line by line, or whether it's defeating an enemy army. You divide up the problem and conquer it piece by piece. You don't divide up your strength. A house divided against itself cannot stand. It's a true statement. And frankly, it's a tactic that the devil still likes to use and to wage on us. He likes to divide and conquer us. And so he tries to isolate us so that we're cut off from the encouragement, the strength, and the support of the community that's of saints that God provides for one another through the congregation. Even animals are aware of the danger of being isolated and alone, and so they move together in herds. And yet we tend to think that we're okay on our own, that we don't need all these other people, that we can be strong enough by ourselves. And we swallow that lie of the devil hook, line, and sinker. And he divides and conquers us. We cut ourselves off from corporate worship. We cut ourselves off from a Bible study because we're afraid of whoever else might be there. Not who is there, but who could possibly be there. And we fool ourselves into thinking that our reasons are valid. And let's be honest with ourselves, though. Are we allowing the enemy's strategy here to divide and conquer us? Are we allowing this enemy's strategy here to keep us from growing in Christ so that he can continue to weaken us, so that we're more easily deceived, so that we're more easily left to abandon our faith because we don't have others who are helping us through difficult times? Are we divided? Jesus says it's not good for man to be alone. And that wasn't just for Adam in the garden, but that continues for each one of us today. The reality is we're not as strong as we think we are. We need each other and we can't allow divisions to keep us from Christ. Christ's kingdom is not a divided kingdom. After establishing the principle here that no kingdom can stand divided, Jesus continues on in his response, sowing seeds of division amongst the Pharisees here. In verse 18, he asks them this question. 
says, For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, then by whom do you say your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. The Pharisees are left with a confession to make here. Will they continue to believe that Jesus cast out demons by the power of Satan? And that the only way demons are cast out is by the power of Satan? Well, there's a problem. Because Jesus wasn't the only one who was casting out demons. Jesus cast out demons by his own power, by the power of God. But others were casting out demons by the power of God. We see the disciples doing this later on. So if these Pharisees maintain that it is the only by the power of the devil that demons are cast out, then what are they to say of the ones of their own camp, these other Pharisees and these other Jews who are casting out demons at that time? Are these Pharisees to reject their own? Are they to explain all exorcisms here as demonic? Or will they confess that only the power of God is able to cast out demons? and see that this man standing before them is a man who has the power and authority of God. Jesus translates the discussion into one that eliminates all confusion, or should have, for these people. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus frankly tells them here, I am casting demons out by the power of God. The kingdom of God is here. It has come upon you. So what will you do with it? Will you continue to refuse the Messiah? Will you continue to hold fast to some other kingdom that you are waiting for? The kingdom that you are waiting for and that is promised to you is here. Now I have come. Will you continue to refuse the Messiah to believe in your delusional nonsense? that I cast out demons by the power of the devil? Will you confess still that I am in league with the devil? And to help them with their decision, Jesus explains the situation in another way in verses 21 through 22. When a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he relied and distributes his plunder. There's a certain sense of security that our homes provide us. They provide a shelter from the outside elements, which is definitely nice, but also protection from unwanted visitors and guests. If having a home isn't safe enough for you, then there are other ways that you can enhance the safety of your own home. You can put locks on your doors. It seems basic now, but doors didn't always have locks, and doorways didn't always have doors. You can put alarm systems on your home, You can put video surveillance there to help protect you, to see who is coming. Or you could also have firearms or higher armed guards. All of these are options that you have. Most people won't try to break into other people's homes. But because there are those that do, then there are whole industries that are supported on delivering personal security to you. Strengthening the security of your own home to protect yourself, your family, and your possessions. However, if someone wanted to successfully burglarize your home, they need to be stronger than your security systems. And if they are stronger than your defenses, and you don't stand a chance, it doesn't necessarily always come down to the amount of fight in the dog. For example, a guard dog isn't going to help you out much if a Marine battalion wants to get into your house. The Marine battalion is going to get into your house. The Marines are stronger. 
In using this example here, Jesus acknowledges that the devil is indeed strong. And he is someone that we can be afraid of. He is someone who does, in fact, have power. The devil is not powerless. But Jesus is stronger. And this is the point that Jesus is making here. He is saying, look, a strong man comes and he protects this house. The demon has come and he is protecting this man, saying, this is my territory. Jesus comes along as the stronger man and sends the devil or sends this demon packing. And he leaves. So who is stronger, the devil or this demon, or the devil or Jesus? The answer is Jesus. We looked a few weeks ago at the temptation of Jesus. The devil tempted Jesus again and again, and each time Jesus refuses to give in to the devil's temptations. Jesus came to establish that he is stronger than the devil. More so than being stronger than the devil, he came to crush the devil's head to deliver that mortal wound and cause him to flee. And in Jesus' death and resurrection, that mortal wound has been dealt. And so the devil, though he does still have power, is chained and captive. Christ is stronger. Christ is victorious. Satan is bound and his time is running out. Will the Pharisees still hold on to their claim that Jesus is the devil's henchman? Or will they recognize that Jesus is stronger than the demons? Will they recognize that Christ is Lord? The text doesn't say how the Pharisees respond here, so we shouldn't make our own conclusions on how they decided from this moment on. But we leave them for the Lord to deal with. However, the evidence of this text has now come before you today. When miracles happen, do you see the hand of God's provision? Or do we attribute it to something else? When division comes, do you see the foundations of the building crumbling away, or is it, ah, it's not a big deal, it's okay, we can get through this? When we see evil restrained in this world, even if it comes long after we wanted to see it restrained, but in fact it does come to a restraint that doesn't run rampant, do we see that Christ is in control? Or do we still think that the devil has all power and authority and he gets to do whatever it is he wants? Is Christ the devil's henchman or is he the Savior? Jesus says in verse 23, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. He says to the crowds gathered there to that day, wondering, so is Jesus the Messiah? Is he the son of David? Or is he a servant of the devil? I'm not sure. I'm not sure which one. Jesus says to this crowd, there is no neutral position. There is no proverbial fence for you to sit on. We are either with Christ and gathering with him, or we are against Christ, seeking to scatter the kingdom seeking to separate people from Christ. And that doesn't just mean others, but that could also mean ourselves as well as we slowly fade off and drift away from what what may once have been an active involvement, working with the Lord, gathering people to himself. The question comes, are we working together for the Lord? Or are we telling ourselves we answer to a higher authority? More often than not, that higher authority is ourselves. But when we take a step back and we ask, are we truly a higher authority? We look at God's word and we see who Christ is. We recognize that there is no higher authority than Christ. Are we working together for the Lord? 
Or are we working for someone else? There was a woman in the crowd who recognized Jesus' greatness that day to the point of raising her voice above the murmuring of the crowds to shout something else, praising Christ, though she does it in a way that doesn't necessarily translate very well into our culture today. I'm sure, moms, you probably haven't ever heard a compliment this way when your kid is on the honor roll. Nobody comes and says, congratulations. No one says this day, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. She identifies here how blessed Jesus' mother must have been to have a son so great. Jesus doesn't deny the fact here that, yes, Mary was definitely blessed to raise the Messiah in her own home. There's a blessing for that, but he broadens out this blessing. He expands this blessing to include others, to include even you and I. Jesus says this, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. They are just as blessed as Mary was. This is what Jesus is saying here to the crowd. So this lady who says, oh, your mother must have been just super blessed. And Jesus says, actually, everyone can have that same blessing. If you hear the word of God and you observe it, you guard it and you keep it. And this is frankly what I came to do. For the crowds gathered around Jesus on that day, Jesus invites them into his blessing to hear the word of God as he is speaking it to them and to observe it, to keep it or to guard it, another translation for that word. Holding on to the truth of God's word tenaciously, believing it and acting upon what God's word says. There's one uh, theologian who explains this verse saying that we are to guard the word of God by keeping it safely in our own hearts as the most precious treasure, meaning we, we take the word of God, we place it in our hearts, and we hold fast to that, and we don't let culture try to rip it out. We don't let culture or circumstances try to say, you know, that word of God, it's not really true. And we let the word of God be what it says, and we trust it, and then by allowing no contradiction or alteration of it. We confess God's word to be true. We have the privilege of gathering weekly to hear and to receive God's word, as well as the privilege of reading it ourselves during the week, not just so that we can grow in the knowledge about God's word. So if we're ever called to be on a trivia show, a game show, we can answer the question that, yes, there are 66 books in the scriptures, 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New. That's not why we read God's word. But we read God's word so that we will grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. We spend time in God's word. We gather together around his word to receive his gifts, to grow in faith, and to learn to live as followers of Christ. And we gather together as a congregation to live as followers of Christ together. We can't do it on our own. So we receive, we grow, we learn, and we do. We confess Christ as Savior and Lord, and we follow him in obedience. The crowds were amazed at the works of Jesus. They were divided in their response that day. Jesus called them to a united response to recognize the kingdom of God has come upon them and to see that Jesus is the stronger man. He is stronger than the devil. He is the one who came to crush the serpent's head and to call people into an active faith in God, a faith that hears, 
a faith that guards, a faith that keeps, a faith that observes what the Word of God declares. And so I'll leave you with these two questions here this morning. Who do you say Christ is? And the next question, what will you do with Jesus? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and for its truth. We thank you, Jesus, that you are a God who has come down into this earth, not to do the devil's bidding, but God, you came to show us your love. You came to fulfill that promise that was delivered first in the garden of the Lord, that promise that you already had in mind before the beginning of time, that you would crush the serpent's head, Lord, that you would come to deliver salvation to those who are desperately looking for salvation, Lord, to a lost and dying world. Father, we come before you here today recognizing how much we need you. We need you each and every day, Lord. We continue to need to grow in the knowledge and grace of who you are, what you have done. And Lord, we continue to need one another as well for encouragement in our path of following you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to follow you in truth and purity, that we would not only be hearers of your word, but God, that we would also be doers of your word too, and that you would help us to see the blessing that there is in those who guard and keep your word, who hear your word and obey it. Father, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.